I'm excited to bring out another series with our partners, the HBCU Experience Movement LLC, with their first ever HBCU Band Edition book. The HBCU Experience, the HBCU Band Alumni Edition will release at the end of the month on Amazon. I hope you enjoy these interviews. These are some dynamic people you can learn a lot of lessons from. So t stay tuned and get your pen and paper out because they give you them nuggets. Man, Chase's bio is ridiculous. Let me see if I can get it all in, but <laughs> look at this. Um, Chase Arrington, let me introduce you to Chase Arrington. Chase is a school administrator in Goldford County Schools in Greensboro, North Carolina. Chase is a native of Halifax County, North Carolina, where he grew up in Ironfield, North Carolina and attended Halifax County Public Schools. His parents, Leon, Leon and Retha Arrington are his biggest supporters and provided and provided strong foundation for his education and career choices. Chase attended North Carolina A&T State University located in Greensboro, North Carolina and earned a bachelor's in science, uh, bachelor's of science in mathematics. He never saw himself in education. However, God continued pulling him, pulling on his heart and found himself falling in love with teaching, mentoring, and supporting communities much like his own throughout the state of North Carolina. One of his motivations while in Gulfport County Schools as a middle school mathematics teacher for nine years was to provide the necessary support for students of color from grades six through eight in accelerated math courses. He saw that he saw there was a need to provide an, an extra layer of sustenance as students of color face challenges maintaining the necessary requirements to remain in accelerated math courses throughout grades six through eight. His belief is that any student can access curriculum, however, each student will access it in various entry points, which makes learning and teaching exciting for an educator. His goal as a classroom teacher was not to have every student fall in love with math as he did, but to allow them to know how to problem solve beyond the world of math and the school building. Chase became a leader within the, his school building, he, so he took the leap of faith and earned a Master of Social Administration from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. As he continued to find ways to support not only students, but he also continued to collaborate with community, community stakeholders to provide the best possible equitable education to all students he encountered. In his role as a school administrator, he is an instrumental leader by coaching, instructional leader by coaching teachers to support students culturally and academically. Chase is in his third year as assistant principal at Western Guilford Middle School 
I've probably been saying that wrong the whole time. Previously, Chase was an assistant principal in 2016 and through 2018 at Forsyth Academy Charter School in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and taught mathematics from 2017 to 2016 at Middle School, Mendenhall Middle School, where he was selected Teacher of the Year in 2011. He obtained his Master of Education in Education Policy and Leadership from the American University. His Master masters of school administration from the university of north carolina at greensboro and his bachelor of science in professional mathematics from north carolina a t state university chase currently participates in the gulford aspiring leaders academy for the 2020-2021 school year to focus on men of color in assistant principal roles to prepare them for principalships in the future. Chase also participated in the 2019-2020 New Leaders Assistant Principal Leadership Academy as well as the 2017-2019 as the yeah, 2017 through 2019 William C. Friday Fellowship for Human Relations through the Wild Acres Leadership Initiative. As a leader, Chase focuses on commitment to ensure high scholastic achievement for all students in an equity-focused lens to hold himself and staff accountable for outcomes. He participates with his fraternities within the community to support cultural arts through music as a spring 2004 as a spring 2004 initiated of the Iota Zeta chapter of Kappa Kappa Psi National Honorary Band Fraternity, a spring 2017 initiate of the Iota Epsilon chapter of Phi Mu Alpha Symphonia of America and academic achievement and leadership opportunities as spring 2009 initiate of cap of the kappa lambda chapter of alpha phi alpha fraternity phi mu alpha affords them the opportunity to participate in mills music mission where he gathers with fraternity members to provide musical selections to nearby hospitals assisted living facilities and retirement homes. Kappa Kappa Psi allows him the opportunity to continue mentoring students in the blue and gold marching machine on the campus of North Carolina A&T State University. And Alpha Phi Alpha provides him the platform and vessel to give back through their national programs. Go to high school, go to college, a vote list People is a hopeless people, Project Alpha and Brothers Keeper. In 2015, Chase was afforded the opportunity to participate in a three-week Park City Math Institute through the Institute for Advanced Study in Park City, Utah, where he collaborated collaborated with 
math educators across the country to strengthen educational practices, curriculum, and approaches to problem solving. During his college years, Chase participated in the university's band programs, the Blue and Gold Marching Machine, Wind Ensemble, and Pep Band playing trumpet and the piano for the Wind Ensemble. Additionally, he participated in mathematic in the Mathematics Association of American and was inducted into the Pi Mu Epsilon National Honorary Mathematics Society. By participating in these organizations, he is a part of three amazing organizations which are catalysts for our communities to raise awareness for students attending college, keeping the arts in schools, and most importantly, bringing awareness to students' voice within the community. Chase is currently pursuing his doctorate of education in educational leadership from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. In his free time, Chase enjoys traveling with his family and friends, cooking and playing with his Yorkshire Terrier, Kirby. Enjoy this episode and wow, these these band members are phenomenal, so uh, enjoy, enjoy. I, I hear you for sure, and I'm I'm excited about this opportunity. And I appreciate you one for accommodating my schedule. Oh, no problem. <laughs> um, it, it is, um, but yeah, I, you know, people ask me, are HBCU still prevalent in today's society? And my answer is absolutely, one hundred percent. Absolutely, we are. If we are needed, um, especially in in this current um, racially challenging. Um, society from the top down Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. when you go into predominantly black communities it's just a different experience and it prepares you for what's to come but you always safe haven to go back to like that's how i feel about my hbcu experience but anyway i won't get too far into that no keep going keep going (laughs) that's what we're here to talk about the hbcu experience like keep going i just think about homecoming um Mm -hmm. i think about Saturday football games. I think about, uh, you know, just last week, A&T had Aggie would bring um, homecoming for, you know, the act, uh, the current member, the current students at um, And it's to celebrate all the Greeks that recently crossed. Uh, it's to celebrate just Blacks on our campus mm. uh, and to elevate and support each other, you know, and when you get this far into the year and after midterms and you're almost ready for the end of the second semester, it's like, all right, let's celebrate one more time before we go home for the summer. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's a week long of just Aggie festivities. Um, and to be an Aggie is just, it's, 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 it's unbelievable. I can't put it into words. Uh, when you see someone with the, with A&T on or Aggie pride on their shirt, all you have to do is walk up to them and just say Aggie pride. And they're going to respond immediately aggie pride and you're like yeah like no matter what era we came through no matter what decade no matter i mean honestly no don't even matter the the religious background the gender or anything it's just we respond that way to each other uh race included um i'm 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 even excited to see people that aren't of color coming to hbcus for whatever reason 
Um, they're mm -hmm. desiring something and they're trying to tap into the history that's unspoken in, you know, K-12. And so I'm excited mm -hmm. to experience to be with my people. And that's the reason why I attended HBCU because I've always been around my people. My first experience not being around my people was when I graduated. But I do feel like I was prepared uh, because A&T prepared me. Um, so, I mean, it, it was, it's unbelievable. It's an unbelievable experience for sure. I mean, I cherish those years at A&T. Um, I made my lifelong friends at A&T. Mm -hmm. um, I'm still connected to them. So we talk about homecoming, but it's always a homecoming for us. It's it's nothing, it's nothing like it, as you can tell. I'm excited about it. So, <laughs> yeah. And uh, one of the first people are the the guy uh, that connected me with the HBCU experience movement is uh, an Aggie. So, um, it, and and we we close now. I mean, we don't talk all the time, but like we we close. <laughs> um, after after we met, we met at like a a conference uh, where Eric Thomas was speaking, and he lives in the same area that I do. So I was like, man, let's let's link up, and we never linked up. But when we did link up, it was like it, he was like one of my homeboys yeah. for 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 years, and, and we just talking and chit chatting. So I appreciate that, and I got the Aggie pride just just based off of him. Yeah. <laughs> And it's okay to say Aggie Pride, even if you're not an Aggie, we embrace them all. We embrace them all, so that's good. And uh, tell me about your band experience. I mean, that, that's what we're here for. We The book is coming out this uh -huh. uh, this this April, the end of the April. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, tell me a little bit about how you got into um Maybe before, before you got to um, a and mm -hmm. and um, how you got into band to begin with and then kind of transition into your experience and how band has shaped your life as well. Sure. Um, so my my brother and my, my, my older brother, we're four years apart, and my cousins, I was the baby of the family, so I'm um, still in the baby of the family. So... Um, they were all in marching band. They were all in band in middle school. And so while I was in elementary school, I could not wait to pick up an instrument. So up until that point, my mom, you know, she had me in piano lessons. And so I, that's why I learned to really have a love for music. And I, I, I developed a love for playing instruments. And so, you know, my brother was a percussionist that played uh, clarinet, saxophone. And so when I saw them in the marching band in high school, I was like, I want to be there. I want to be in that band. And so from there, uh, it's kind of, <laughs> it's a, a funny situation. Um, in sixth grade, that's when I started marching with the high school band. Um, and not really even knowing how to play my instrument, I became this, uh, this junior drum major, so to speak. So I was kind of like the gimmick, the show, uh, to kind of just elevate the band program at that time. I had no idea what I was doing. But <laughs> the director of bands who, you know, he's an eagle. He went to North Carolina Central. Uh, he, he took me on his wing and he said, this is what it's like to, you know, be in a, a high step in uh, black high school band and, you know, the show style band. And so from there, you know, I'm, I was that junior drum major for sixth and seventh grade. And then eighth grade came and he said, all right, now you, you've done what you needed to do. I need you to instrument now. 
And so that was my first time playing, you know, my instrument in the marching band in eighth grade. Uh, and along that time, that's when I connected with, uh, you know, the fifthquarter.com uh, going into my high school career. And, you know, Christy Walker, A&T's very own, um, helped start that website where it connected my people together. And so you talk about the HBC, your experience within, within that. I talk about my band experience um, and how not everybody at my high school loved band the way that I did. Uh, I mm. literally went home trying to search all um, audio clips. There was no YouTube back then. So the only way that mm. you could see what was going on in other people's programs, you had to trade tapes. And I know that's probably like crazy. Which mean you traded tapes, VHS tapes on the website. <laughs> it was like trading playing cards back in the day. If you had this card, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to trade you for that one. So we were trading band tapes so I could learn as much about, you know, the MEAC, the SWAC, the SAC, the CIAA. And so, you know, my high school band directors, uh, Mr. Walter Suggs, who's still a high school band director in Charlotte, and then Mr. Derek Wiggs, who went to Winston State, um, and he also marched in the band at Winston State. And then Mr. Uh, McLeod, who marched in the band at Hampton University. So between those three, they they cultivated uh, my love for marching band, but then they also balanced it out for, uh, you know, concert season. And that's when I really started, you know, strengthening my, my playing skills. And so I said, you know what, I got to get ready for college. Because I said, I'm going to march in a college, black college band. It's going to happen. And so my first time seeing A&T um, live was in 97, uh, fall of 97. I was in eighth grade. And uh, I said, Ma, I have to be there. Like it was Aggie Eagle Classic, Raleigh, North Carolina, <laughs> Carter Finley Stadium. And it was Aggies, Aggies versus the Eagles. And my brother, you know, he was a senior at that time in high school and he was going to Central. And so, you know, I spent four years at Central with him. And I said, I'd be doggone if I'm going to Central. I'm going to a and And so, um, <laughs> and so, you know, from there, uh, you know, my, my high school band directors, they supported me. And they just told me, you know, if you're going to do it, it's going to be a commitment. But you're going to have the best years of, of your life. And so moving into, uh, you know, high school and doing the four years there and, and man, and, you know, my director saw something in me. And so I became sex leader in high school. Uh, real, I mean, I was humbled by the experience because uh, I became a sex leader in my 10th grade year. I, I had what it took to be a sex leader to run the trumpet section. Uh, but through time, you know, with the support and the, the words of wisdom from my, my directors who also marched in, you know, black college bands, uh, I was able to overcome some of those fears and develop this confidence and this network opportunity to, you know, go out and be able to take on any challenges that are faced before me. And so, you know, moving to A&T under Dr. Johnny B. Hodge, the late, great Dr. Johnny B. Hodge, um, it was, it was, it was surreal. I'll never forget the, the first day of band camp. Uh, and he walked out the band, he walked out his office and we played Battle Hymn Chorale. And I've heard A&T play this numerous times from middle school to high school. And now it was my time to, you know, participate in one of the best college bands in the world. And I recall that day 
And I said, I can't believe I'm here because I never thought I had what it took to be mm-hmm. in that experience uh, and to, you know, see the people face to face that I connected with through the fifth quarter um, dot com through the website and to be sitting in the same space as that. Um, I, I was I was overwhelmed. And so going from, you know, hearing that Dr. Hodge was going to retire uh, after my friend, I was like, no, like, this is the reason why I'm here. But then, you know, he left it in the hands of Dr. Kenneth G. Ruff, the current director of bands. And so I did majority of my of my years under Dr. Ruff, very much like my uh, my high school experience. Dr. Ruff was waiting for me to, to rise to the occasion. Again, I did not think I would ever come to ANTNB. <laughs> but I, I, I guess I, I was given the challenge. And um, at that point, I took over the trumpet section uh, my junior year in college. So, you know, third year in band, um, I just enjoyed the experience and traveling and getting to connect with other, uh, other bandsmen. And then, you know, Pledge Kappa Kappa Psi gave me another insight to finding my, quote, people, so to speak. And so, uh, you know, when, when you connect with people that you can sit down and no matter uh, where you are and y'all can be connected because of one common thread and that common thread is banned, it doesn't matter. We can have conversations for days. And while it doesn't have to be just about that, like you said, you met you know, the Aggie, uh, you know, through another situation. And it's like, you guys have known each other for a lifetime. And uh, that, that's the way mm-hmm. it feels for me, uh, meeting with people uh, during that time and band. And so being nervous, um, coming in, not knowing what you're really walking into, uh, but walking away with so much more. That was, that was the experience. So, I mean, that's it oh, in, a, in a larger nutshell. And so um, thinking back to, I guess, some of the, the larger highlights, um, being able to go down to FAMU and seeing FAMU in person for the first time my freshman year and going up against a monstrous 350-piece uh, band. And we were marching about a 180. Mm. And so it was like, whoa. And I was like, how are we supposed to handle this? But Doc had prepared us. Dr. Hodge had prepared us for that. And uh, that fifth quarter goes down in... Uh, that goes down as one of the most memorable experiences for sure. Um, and then, uh, you know, moving ahead, seeing A&T perform in the first Honda Battle of the Bands, uh, not, well, not the first Honda Battle, but their experience in the first Honda Battle of the Bands in 2000, mm-hmm. January 2009, uh, being able to see my band on that field um, and the experience to know that when you say Aggie Pride, at that time in the Georgia Dome, and it resonated people, whether they were Aggies or not, they knew the respond. That's what it's all about for me. Um, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's surreal to be on the field and then you hear the drum major say, you know, you hear the announcer say, it's gonna be mean, it's gonna be clean. We call it, and the drum majors do that tweet, tweet, and you lean back and you hear everybody say the Aggie lean, and it's like, yeah, People are here for, and that was the experience at Carter Finley back in 97. Um, when you have that stadium filled up with nothing but Aggies, but they know the traditions. And I said, I want to be a part of that tradition. Um, and so while I can't say I left a legacy at AT, I sure took AT with me and, and I live with it every day. 
Uh, and everybody knows I'm Aggie. You do not have to guess at what one did. Uh, <laughs> and don't get into an argument with me about it because you're more likely going to lose. And that you can hold true to your to your college experience, but A&T is near and dear to my heart for sure. So, yeah. Man, <laughs> that's an experience that, like, you you articulated that to a T. Well, <laughs> I've had a while to think about it. I, I think often about that experience, and I think about, uh, you know, things I would have done different if I would have done anything differently. I know I would have, I wouldn't have made another choice in attending another school. Uh, I have absolutely zero mm-hmm. regrets about that. Um uh, so no, I, I don't really have any regrets there. I mean, it was what God ordained me to to do and to be. And so uh friends, uh, you know, it's nothing for an Aggie to come through Greensboro or, you know, they might be, you know, somewhere else and they're traveling through and they're just called. You know, one of my one of my crowd brothers called me Sunday. He came through um and we marched together in undergrad and he just hit me up, he's like, Hey, you home? Yeah, I'm home. All right. Well, I was going to come through on my way back to Charlotte. Sure. It's 930 at night. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. That's just what we do. And so to stay in contact with each other, um, it it, it means a lot. And even now, during this unprecedented time of COVID-19, we're still checking on each other. Because even the strong people need to be checked on. And so my brothers and my sisters, I, Mm -hmm. I march with, you know, We've been we've been right there with each other, making sure uh, if they need anything, we're there for them. Because that band that we had, the 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 band camps, the the blisters from marching band boots, the lips from playing all day long, the blood, sweat, and tears, it 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 it, it bound us together for a lifetime. Um, and we saw each other at our weakest, but we also saw each other by picking each other up at our strongest. And that led me to the lifelong friendships I have today. Uh, but I'm going to stop now because I can keep going on and on and on. So, No, I'm going to allow you to, I'm allow you to, to direct this course. So. No, that's it. I, I did what I needed to do. <laughs> you just, I said, yeah, you, you, you just opened, you just opened the book for sure. For sure. So yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, what uh, the question I had is uh, looking at all your accomplishments and stuff. Um, what made you want to get all of the education that you have and are pursuing? Like, what what's inside you to go get more? Because uh, when, I, well, I had a different. Uh, I had my own experience with education. I I got a, a advanced mm-hmm. degree. Um, right after undergrad and the great recession happened. So like er- all the work that I put in in undergrad and grad school, it, it like went for not. So I was like, man, and then I didn't get no job for like, seven, you know, good, a decent job for almost 10 years after I graduated uh, with my mm-hmm. master's degree. So, um, I'm 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 not complaining about what I went through. I'm just saying, like I was like, I ain't about to go back and get no doctorate <laughs> degree because it, it ain't translating into, right, into right, money right. for me. 
and I'm only getting paid twenty four thousand five hundred dollars. Yeah. yeah, get out of here. I, I hear you. I hear you on that. Um, so what made me go and do all these these degrees? I, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> so I never because can't nobody like school. I, you know, I really do. I tell people all the time if I could be a professional student and they just pay me to go to school. I would do it, but the experience would be worth it without really? applying the knowledge. But yeah, I really, what I really do enjoy being in, you know, those shared spaces with people and learning from, you know, my peers. Uh, I'm an educator, true and true and through, um, for sure. Um, I, I never saw myself in education. Uh, mm. Mm. My mom, she ne- she didn't necessarily discourage me from becoming a teacher. At that time, she just said, you know, I don't want you to struggle the way that your dad and I myself had to struggle. Uh, mm-hmm. I want you, you you are capable of doing. And, uh, you know, I started off in computer science and undergrad, but I had no desire to do that. Uh, while I'm still an introvert, I have extroverted tendencies and not saying that all engineers and computer scientists are, you know, ex- introverts. But sitting behind that computer and limiting my interaction with people, I was challenged by that. I wanted to sit mm-hmm. and problem mm-hmm. solve with people. And so that problem solving piece of computer science field led me to that love of math. I told my mom in high school, I, told, I said, I want to major in math. She said, who first made, who on earth majors in math? I said, I do. Like, I didn't want to major in math education. I just wanted to major in pure mathematics. And in mm-hmm. the long run, that's what I ended mm-hmm. up doing. But after... Um, being an undergrad and seeing so many students struggle with what I would consider basic math computation, um, they were able to get through it because they worked extremely hard. But I said, somebody failed them along the way. And I can't blame, uh, I can't blame that on the person. Uh, They don't get to choose their teachers. They don't get to choose Mm -hmm. the schools that they Mm -hmm. attend. They don't get to choose the communities they're born into. But if I have a student, I have a choice to make an impact on them. And so that's what I saw while tutoring in the math department at A&T. Uh, I was like, I need to do something about this. While I know I can't touch every student, I'm going to touch a couple of them to make them not fear math. You don't have to love it as much as I do, but I want you to be able to have access to opportunities. And this is not going to be one thing that's going to keep you from reaching your goals and achieving your dreams. Uh, because, you know, I was taught that in eighth grade by my algebra one teacher. Uh, he wanted to make sure that we had access to things that, uh, you know, black people before my time did not have access to. Uh, my mom, she's not afraid to say that she struggled in math. Um, the average, unfortunately, the average person sometimes struggles with math for whatever reason. I have no idea. But I tell folks, if you come to my class, you will learn and I'm going to tear down those barriers for you. So while teaching, I saw myself uh, stepping into the leadership role by my principal. You know, he tapped me at that time and said, Chase, I need you in a leadership team. And I said, OK, sure. And he said, all right, now you're here. Uh, when we go back to school to get your master's. I said, OK, all right, I guess it's time to go. And so, you know, through the brotherhood of Alpha Phi Alpha, there are several educators there. Um, after joining um, Alpha, I had several retired principals and former superintendents say, all right, Dace, again, you've done five years in education. We're not going to be, you know, stuck in the classroom. Not to say it's bad to be stuck in, be in the classroom, but they said, mm-hmm. I see so much more in mm-hmm. you. 
And so, you know, they said, let's go ahead and apply to graduate school. I never thought that I could really do graduate school because at that time I wasn't the strongest writer. Um, and I still feel like, you know, leaps and bounds to go with writing as my professors currently tell me now. Um, but I went to UNCG to get my master's in school administration and I saw myself wanting to be that principal one day. So um, as once I, you know, made that change from the classroom to assistant principalship, uh, I was assistant principal at a charter school and I found myself um, falling in love with policy work, education policy. And I said, I that good. And what that, is I, that? That's what, what is I'm that? I'm saying, I said, what in the world is ed policy? While looking at the policies within the school system and then the policies from, you know, the state, uh, because people don't realize the governor, the person that controls your education um, experience in that state, and then you have the state superintendent. Um, all of those policies are coming down from them, from, leg from the legislature. And so when people aren't, are not aware of that, when you go into go in to vote and people aren't sure about what they're voting for, they aren't sure where these fundings are, the funds are going and how that's going to impact the community, how property taxes impact what funds go to what schools. That's when I said, you know, I, I don't I don't know if I can do a whole lot, but I need to figure out more. And I need to figure out how I can find me a seat at the table. And so experiencing some of the racial inequities uh, in education, not having black and brown students have access to certain curriculums. And I'm seeing that, you know, predominantly white schools are having these certain resources, these AP courses, these IB courses. And I'm like, why is there not a policy written to ensure that these same courses are offered at black schools, at predominantly black mm -hmm. schools? And so mm -hmm. I, I talked to, you know, one of my frat brothers. Um, he's a he's an attorney here in Greensboro. I said, you know, I'm really concerned in going to law school because I want to be on the advocacy side of uh, education. He said, well, Chase, you know, you don't really have to go to law school to do that. And I said, really? He said, yeah, well, why, why waste all that money um, when you can just go and do education policy? He said, you're a, you're a practitioner. He said, I'm not certain that he said, I'm not saying you can't be a lawyer, but you can do the same work with this ed policy degree. And so at that point, you know, that's when I, I started. I didn't know what it is either. I just knew I enjoyed policy. I didn't know there was such a thing called education policy. Um, so after doing some research, you know, I attended American University uh, where I finished with my education policy degree. And through that program, I started realizing um, how we can enact change. We can enact racial change and um, provide access to our students and um, provide opportunities for teachers to grow in the field of education through policy. Because all of that is coming from where? The top of the state, from the governor. And if we're not thinking of, um, of policy in a critical perspective where we're challenging the status quo, um, because everything in education is about uh, conforming to white society. It's what the white man has yep. stated to be um, to be the normal. And unfortunately, yep. in a lot of policies, black people are not considered. Women are not considered. And so that's what led me to now 
doing this doctor education leadership because I want to dive deeper into the policy work. And so, you know, um, I don't know if this is going to change, but my, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of doing research in the field of um, transient populations. I'm finding that most of my students that I have the highest discipline issues with or the discipline or behavior challenges are students that are, they are transplant students. They are students that didn't grow up in that culture or that community. And so they are lacking the culture capital of that community. They are not uh, aware of the expectations within that community because I'm in middle school right now. And so I have students that have been together since kindergarten in the cohort. But then when I get these mm. new students to come to our school in seventh and eighth grade, that they've never been around this group of people um, and thinking about how we can onboard those students to feel a part of that community, even though they didn't grow up in that community. Uh, and then connecting, connecting the parents with other parents in that community so they can develop the cultural capital because not having that, that cultural capital, you feel like you're left out. You're not, you're not sure about who you are. And so that's the same experience I had at A&T. You know, I feel like going to HBCU, being, you know, a black male, I felt like I had cultural capital because everybody pretty much looked like me. Whereas if I would have attended a predominantly white institution, the cultural capital wouldn't have been there as much. Um, I would have to not necessarily conform to them, but I would have to find my people within that group, which would probably been a little bit more challenging. Um, so that led me to continue doing this thing called education. Um, I'm passionate about working with the youth. I'm passionate about working with my teachers. Um, I'm passionate about seeing the light bulbs come on where we just, um, we provide, again, going back to access to, you know, a future. And I tell my students all the time, if you learn to read and you have comprehension skills and you learn to write, effectively right and then you have the math to go with that you you can do anything you want to do and i push my kids i push them into the honors classes i push them into the advanced classes and they said miss Anton, i can't do it. yes you can you're gonna do it this year because you're not gonna let me down you're not gonna let yourself <laughs> down you're not gonna let your parents down um and we, we we push that and i'm i'm appreciative of my principal patrice brown who you know also marched at eight, she marched at one seven state. Um, and you know, she before my time, but we still have connection. And because of that connection alone, we go into that school every day and we do our best to break down the systemic structures that have placed barriers in front of our students. Because I I, I cannot rest at night knowing that my students may not have access to something because I refuse to say something about it. And so that's what led me to yeah. education policy um, and the policy work that I do inside my school. Thing. That is <laughs> super interesting because um, so I work at a school that is um, 86% minority, mostly Hispanic. And uh, the whole, like, 90 to 95% of the, the, the teaching, the, the faculty and staff are mm. white. <laughs> and they're the number one school in Kansas and on one of the polls or whatever. 
So, like, there's mm-hmm. a whole bunch of different elements, like, um, that 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 play the factors that play into mm-hmm. the education of these students. Because, um, I, so I drive Uber on the side as well. So I've picked up like students that went to the school before and graduated from the school, and they they like, man, they didn't teach us. It, what you're talking about is like the um, the extra nuances of life outside when I have to go to I, I'm going to KU and I'm I'm the minority. But when I was in high school and I was mm-hmm. the number one school in Kansas, I I was the mm-hmm. I, we were the majority mm-hmm. and I was comfortable and I could yeah. be my unique self, my 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 individuality could come out. But when I go into this PWI, I can't do that. (laughs) They look at me crazy and I got to go find Mm -hmm. this little group of people that I'm supposed to hang with for the whole four years that I'm here. Just and not. And I think that's doing a disservice. And there's I don't think there's nobody in the school that can really teach the students what they need to learn Mm. besides me. <laughs> I mean, you could teach them a, a a subject like they can do it because they you, they just tell they they're smart students like they're they're high achieving students. You you could tell them what you what they need to know, but what they really need to know to keep that individuality moving forward and stay and 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 not conform to societal mm-hmm. uh norms which we all know which is the, mm-hmm. it's the white man's norms <laughs> and if we conform we're just uh, continuing on the, with the uh, with, with with what how it's how it's how it's been and how it's and how it could be mm-hmm. still going on you know if we want to change it we have to bring our individuality to every place and i tell people all the time black people all the time i'm like your presence wherever Mm -hmm. you are is powerful so my presence in the school is powerful so it it, i don't even have to talk to the students just just by my ethos and and what i represent is there and everybody knows it and (laughs) and they try to celebrate it and they and kind of they don't know how to because I can't even really speak on on the things that I need to speak on mm-hmm. in public, <laughs> like <laughs> because it, it it just goes against uh, their uh, their norms, and I'm a disruptor to to their their number one ranked school and stuff. If I really spoke what I what I truly believe and and what I truly know, just just being the only everywhere I go. But and also being talented yeah. and the only and, it, you know, they just give you uh, um, busy work and stuff like that and take you away from your gift and don't utilize mm-hmm. your your real capabilities and, and things like that are um, the connection with students. Like, I mean, it's kind of unfortunate for me that I don't get to uh, like like. I have to force my mm-hmm. way into these situations that that like <laughs> like I I mean 
it, it's hard when yeah. there's so many moving diff- different parts and it's hard for administration to put you in a, a good position when there's so many moving parts and you're like, I'm in administration now and I work with students that do dual mm-hmm. credit and yeah. concurrent credit um, classes. So, um, but they're in class all day long. So I only get to speak with the students that have study halls and usually they're seniors and stuff. But, um, you know, it, it it's an interesting dynamic that I'm in and um, the dynamic that you're in is, is totally mm-hmm. like 180 degrees different. I think they have good intentions, but they really don't know how to teach them for life that I'm, that that makes that 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 makes and, complete sense and so you know i used to be i used to sit in your shoes um this is my first this is my first black principal uh, i've had black ap's um assistant principals but I, this is my first black principal in this spirit and i'm not saying that they you know mm-hmm. my other principals didn't do their job they did um, but experience was different. Um, it was it was a it was a different experience, but mm-hmm. it was a learning experience for both them and myself. Uh, because when you don't, well, let me back up. The one thing that I'm challenged with is when people, when um, when white people share with me that, well, I grew up in poverty. I I say to myself, and yeah. I, 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 I in return tell them I said, but I didn't. So we don't have a shared experience. And, and that's not to say that I grew up upper echelon. I did not there either. I grew up very middle class. I had what mm-hmm. I needed. Uh, we had some things that we wanted, but I had everything I needed. You know, my mom went to college. Um, dad was military. Um, and so we, I, w- I would say I had a pretty decent, I had a pretty decent upbringing. So when a white person say to me, that well, I grew up in poverty. Are you saying that you connect with black people because you think all black people grew up in poverty? Like that's not that's not what it means <laughs> to be black in America. And so when they open those doors, yeah. I ask them honestly, you know, are you open to having this conversation? Because we can go here, but I don't know how you're gonna feel when you walk away. And most are in what I'm finding out is that most not all most are engaged enough to want to learn but they're they're not sure how to go about mm-hmm. um asking the question offensive and i said mm-hmm. it's only offensive if you don't ask mm-hmm. it i mean if you walk around here um yeah. not knowing you know that slavery is still institutionalized in america today through another form then you're part of the problem. Um, you know, when I think about the yeah. fact that a known felon can no longer vote in America, what what's the purpose of having citizenship? I I I I, I, I yeah. struggle with that. I know a lot of people might they might push back on that, but a lot of people make mistakes and then they come out and they're better people for it. Um, it's just another institutionalization of slavery. And I have seen so many of my former students end up behind those walls and then they lose their voice. And then we get the unfortunate situations of our of 
the United States former president, um, where he doesn't care about people like us. And so um, I just, the education <laughs> was nowhere on his platform other than, you know, promoting provoking mm-hmm. schools and promoting private schools and making sure they have what they need or better yet, taking money from public schools and putting into private schools. So that was that you was messing with your so, po- policy. So all of that, <laughs> that led me all to want to focus on ed policy because I said mm-hmm. something has to be done about this. Mm-hmm. Somebody has to be sitting at a table to say no, it's not okay. But for some odd reason, you're taking the tax dollars from hard-earned middle-class people. And you're pushing it into other neighborhoods because a kid don't want to go to their zone district school. And you want to move them out of that zone district school and send them to the private school across town because someone said it was a better program. So then why not put the money back into the community? Right. I, I just. So, exactly. So that they, exactly. They you know, we talk about, um, you know, integrating schools and I often ask my grandmother who's 89 I say you know um how how you know how were schools during your time like you know was discipline an issue was uh, you know the academic challenges you know there uh, how did students re- you know did they respect the teachers did they respect education did people try did people find education to be important and she said, absolutely. She said, but that's because we were segregated. And she said the moment that integration took mm-hmm. place, and this is the part that, you know, a lot of people may not, um, I guess, uh, interpret when they hear integration. Um, it's not a mixture of black and white. That's not what integration was. Integration was black people had to go to the white schools. White people didn't come to the black school. And so I had to go sit, my, my folks had to go sit in the white schools. Um, and then white, the white said, no, we don't want you here. So therefore we're going to go start private schools. And so that's where mm. the, the notion of private mm. schools really um, was truly derived because they said, no, we need to do something for our people. So while we're going to give you access to our buildings, we're going to give you access to our previous resources we're going to go out here and we're going to make other resources that you're still not going to have access to because you don't have money in order to to. go to our schools and so instead of them putting a race on it and saying well blacks are not welcome here private schools they said we're going to put a funding on it we're going to make you pay to go here Yeah, I, I, so I got an interesting story. Uh, the school that I work at is the is formerly mm-hmm. a segregated black school, right? And um, the legendary uh, FAMU band mm-hmm. director that wrote the book on band, our wow. marching band, Dr. went to Foster? this school, Sumner High School. Uh-huh. Yeah, Dr. Foster. Yes, so um, that... I got that connection <laughs> right there, but the uh, it, it's interesting. You said that um, the integration. So I was talking to the the guy that that um, 
he's like a well-known uh, black prominent figure in in uh, KC, black KC, um, that runs the alumni room. And because he was telling me all the stories about um, Dr. Foster and everything. And he was and I asked him, I was like, what's the difference between this school that that produced Dr. Foster and all of these great people and what we what we're dealing with now in education? And he flat out told me he was like integration. Like we we were segregated. He was like that mm-hmm. that school was segregated from the white school, and the governor. You mm-hmm. you mentioned the power of the governor. Um, the governor at the time when they. Yes, sir. Hey, we can we can do it like this because I got a, I got okay. another phone that that I'm recording on. So okay. can can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. I don't know what was going on. I apologize. I don't know if it was on my. Oh, it's all right. It it happens sometimes. But um, so uh, the interesting part about that school was that um, after a racial incident, whatever happened, the they segregated the schools, um, and the governor said that um, the both both schools had to, the, both teachers at all the uh, the teachers at both the schools had to get paid the same so the white teachers the black teachers got paid the same as the white teachers so mm-hmm. it, because of that Sumner High had a whole bunch of people or uh, black teach educators from all over the the uh nation f- coming to that school because they got paid the most right so these are these are educators with master's degrees, PhDs, all in this high school. Like these, he was telling me that all the educators have higher degrees than the people that worked in the um that that were um, instructing at the community college. So like all of this black excellence came out of this school and. It is unbelievable, and and I was sitting there listening to him, and he was talking about everything, all these articles of people all over the world, all over the nation that are just doing big things, and I'm like, what is the difference between their accomplishments and, and what is happening now? You know what I mean? Why can't we accomplish that, that amount of success? We can and we do, but not at that level and not all concentrated at that at that in that one area. Right. So they were winning Mm -hmm. like chess championships and basketball. It's the same kids that was that was winning chess championships. They was winning basketball championships and nobody in Kansas wanted to play them. They (laughs) like all the white schools didn't want to play them because they knew they was going to get beat. And and I, and I'm wondering, like, it, I I kind of know, and I think it's because of adversity. Like, they had in your face adversity. Like right now, we don't have we we have some in your face adversity, but like somebody can be racist and and not show it at work, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> 
but and we wouldn't know it. We would think that person cool, but behind our back, they they uh telling people bad things about us, trying to take us down. You know, just just making it a bad environment for us, and um, so we don't have that that in your face adversity all the time, and, and it's. I just I just think like that that's the I mean and we were taught by our own right they everybody which made a difference it made a difference because we we know the nuances like yeah I can teach you math but I need to teach you on uh how the connection between math and life <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. and that's what you do <laughs> and did or I I don't know if you you still in yeah, that goes back to the cultural capital. You have capital within that culture. Mm. Because you know the culture. The teachers know the culture. The students know the culture. When you go as, I mean, you're an educator. When you move to a new school or a new school district, or I mean, even if you stay in the same school district and move to another school, the culture is going to be there, different. As an administrator, as a leader, we have to create opportunities to build capacity and build rapport with that community. It takes time to build that cultural capital to be a part of that community. Mm-hmm. And that's, that doesn't happen across all schools. So when you, why, when you say go ahead, that, go ahead, go ahead. so like... All the teachers is white <laughs> in the school. So, like, they already have an established, and, and they're the quote-unquote number one school in, Can- you know, Kansas. Like, that that's already an organization culture right there. So, me coming in with a, a kind of uh, a disruptor type of, of philosophy... <laughs> It don't mm-hmm. it don't it don't go over well. So it does. And then I'm trying to find my way in in my position and understand what that is. At the same time, I I need to give these students what they need. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I got I got and now I got to check the teachers and and the administrators. Like our principal, he says he he says our kids are compliant. Like I hate when he says that. Like compliant is a uh, is a police term. Like, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> stop saying that. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Our, our our kids are they they follow directions. That that's that's what you're supposed to say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because at that point, everything becomes school centric and not community focused. You want the kids to come into that building, remove everything that they are as an individual, and be compliant under your rules. Mm. Whose rules? The- Hello? Yeah, I'm here. I said that they can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Um, what I what I was saying is, you know, it becomes very school centric. So when I look at school mission statements, school vision statements, or you know, district vision statements and mission statements. If the student is not the focus of what you want them to do once they leave our system, then we're doing them a disservice. Mm, um, okay. Um, it's so, not about them coming to school and 
conforming to what we want them to be. It's about meeting the child where they are and providing them the necessities in order to go where they want to go. Right, right. And I think that's where, like, my heart clashes in this Mm -hmm. environment because I'm like, I don't care what you want to do. If you tell me you got a goal, like, I'm going to start helping you put you in position for whatever you want. Because I know that you have the capabilities, but also that this country is changing at the same time. And there's going to be way more opportunities for you to be in the uh, the Fortune 500 CEOs than there is now. And in 20 years, this country is going to be a majority minority country. So you're going to be you're going to be living like me and having access to a lot of different things. (laughs) So I need to build you up as a leader now while, while I can, while your mind is moldable and you haven't been compliant for the, um, (laughs) the, the status quo, which we all know what the status quo is. Mm -hmm. So that's what I've been struggling. And I go to school like every day and it brings down my spirit because I'd be wanting to like I do talk to them on a one on one basis, like in small groups. And when I when I can, I, I talk to them like direct, like this is what it is. This is what you're feeling now. Um, This is what you need to look for. All of that stuff all the way to their goals. Like, <laughs> but I can only do so much if it ain't at a uh a a whole school level you know what i mean because everybody think they already know what's best for the students and i'm like y'all students is telling me (laughs) that y'all ain't doing enough after they get out of high school and but that's okay with them because um their white people's are yeah white people's um vision is different than our visions, you know, and they their their uh goals are based off of comfort and security. So, if we shoot for their goals, we gonna end up in mediocrity. And and we can only you can only see as far as your expectations. So if there's expectations are, hey, you you graduate, get a good job, and you know have a family, get a house, like mm. we still gonna be at the same place. You're not pushing your family forward. You are to an extent, but the wealth gap is if we got seventeen thousand dollars to to a hundred and seventeen thousand dollars, you know. We we got to go after dreams, and if somebody only has yeah. a, a vision of you, uh, going so far, then you you only see that far. And if yeah. our kids are compliant, you know, with what we see for them, you know, even though they want them to do great things or whatever, but a teacher, I mean, if they ain't got the accolades that you got. <laughs> The, a teacher can only send them so far because a teacher only has like a, a bachelor's degree, maybe a master's degree, right? Yeah. 
I don't know. I don't know. I'm just talking now, but that, I mean, that's some of the things that I just think about when I'm sitting there and I'm doing my work and interacting with people. I'm like, man, we, we got to And, and I don't think that I can change the, the school system from within the system. You know, I, I have to come from the outside and, um, do my own thing. That's why I'm doing this podcast and, and things like that. And like, I got some books coming out. I got, um, uh, online training courses for organization and time management for for students and you know just things that I know that are a big part of school just to enhance and and I want to enhance the white teachers too it it doesn't matter yeah. you are teaching students and all students need to be taught this stuff <laughs> and they need to be taught Absolutely. about their dreams and they need to be taught what what math does for them mentally so that they, they can make the connection of hey this is this may not help me out in life but right now it's getting me prepared for the the strenuous problem solving skills that i need and mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't think man i don't see the that kind of passion in in a lot of schools so you tell me. You tell me. Well, in addition to that, um, learning how to be, you know, be problem solvers of the world, that's why I tell kids all the time, you may not ever graph another quadratic function. However, the problem solving skills that you went through in order to enter that problem, because we're going to all have various entry points. That is one of the one things I tell my students. And I even tell my teachers, the way that you approach a problem is going to be different than everybody else in this room. So no one is wrong, but if we get to a resolve and we find a conclusion and we have a solution, that is the goal. Mm -hmm. That is the ultimate goal. And so um, what I was saying is in addition to them being problem solvers, what I won't happen is someone say, well, I never had a chance to learn that. So that now limits access to my future. Yeah. And what, what I don't want. One of my sayings is that, like, I got to tell you now so you can't say that nobody never told you. You got that right. <laughs> like, I got to tell you at least, at least plant that seed. Hey, at least Mr. Taylor told you. <laughs> you can take it whatever, however you want. Yeah, and I mean, that goes back to, you know, my freshman year at A&T. Like, truth be told, it wasn't that I wasn't interested in being a computer scientist. I just didn't have, I didn't have the access that the rest of the college students at A&T had. Most of the freshmen in my my beginning programming class at A&T, they had already taken programming classes in college. They went to magnet schools. There were early colleges they attended. Um you know, middle colleges, they had gone to college campuses and they had taken courses, you know, throughout the summer. Like they had so much access that I didn't have. We only had two AP classes at my high school, two. Uh, That's it. You felt, did you feel left out, left behind? Left out is an understatement. I felt lost in that class. And so I placed myself in that freshman year um, in Graham and Cherry, trying to figure out how am I going to learn C++ 
when, like, I equated the people in my class, it was like algebra to them. Like, they just breezed right on by, and they had already taken the upper level math class. Like, they just, it was super simple for them. They was like, okay, when are we going to get to the hard stuff? <laughs> like, when are you going to start teaching me about the access I can have to the the hundreds of thousands of dollars I'm going to make once I graduate? Right. I didn't, I didn't have that access. So, you know, even though that class, we were all students of color, we still came in at various entry points. And while I had the support in the computer science department, they did not want me to change my major. I just felt like I was so far behind because I didn't have that access that I was afraid I would never be able to catch up. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't become complacent with doing math because math is no easy feat either. Uh, but I had, I had more access to math. And that started in elementary school, moved on to middle school, and even in high school. I had, I had a lot more access with the math program. And so, you had a better foundation um, to start. I had with. a much stronger. I didn't. It was. It was no foundation in computer science. <laughs> and we didn't offer any programming classes at my high school. So what? I, like I this. Was, this is my question. So. What happens after the access, right? So, um, mm-hmm. our 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 cities, our um, states, and stuff can give us all the access. What if we do get all the access, right? We get access to anything, mm-hmm. everything. What happens after that? Like, because because I can give you access to to YouTube, which we all have access to YouTube. But how are you going to use it? You know what I mean? Because, I mean, I use it in a different way than than a lot of people do. Like, I don't just use it for entertainment. I use it for education. So I I go out there and learn stuff. So what are we going to do with all the access? We're going to eventually get it. Um, Are we? I mean, (laughs) we're fighting to get it, right? (laughs) Are we going to have equal and equitable access to the same things that the status quo has? I mean, I don't know. I'm just just hypothetically, if if we were to get it, right, how are we going to use it? Like, I, I, I like the solutions. Like, what, what, I mean, the reason why I asked the question is because, you know, we... Uh, the 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 powers that be are go- like they can only teach us so much right um mm-hmm. that is comparative to our um our reality to help us be successful so they'll provide us with the access but then we'll have to use it right but if we don't know how to mm-hmm. use it then what is the access, right? Like, (laughs) they already know that we're not going to use it. So I just want to find the solution to our our help people understand when they have these opportunities, what do you need to do with it? You, do you, does that make sense? Mm Mm-hmm. So 
when somebody gets access to it. So I come from a uh, impoverished background or, you know, whatever entry point, using your words, um, whatever entry point I come in at, how do we how do we uh, make that transition into uh, maximizing our access is the real question I'm trying to ask. Because I, I I like like I need to have some solutions. Let's let's look at solutions for and and because let, let me give you a little little bit more backstory. So my uh, my hypothesis is that like no matter where you are, no matter um, what your circumstances is, like you have to maximize what you have. You have to do mm-hmm. do. Um, you got to you got to make it happen wherever you're at right so we may not get the access so wherever you're at and and you may not be able to move to a good school or you know it, so we have mm-hmm. to really understand like success all the way through like i need to do this and and the little nuances which is maybe organization and time management like you can work on that in any circumstance right and it, it, i that's it, i just i just i just like hearing people's solutions to that and uh i don't know if i'm really explaining it right but like my passion is like what are we going to do if if nothing happens and what are we going to do if if all of it happens you know um because I'm at a school where they do have access to AP courses and uh, and IB courses and and things like that. But other the other schools in the district don't have access to I, IB courses. So um, are we just going to sit there and complain back and forth or like I am where I am? So what is what does my school have to offer? What am I going to use to my advantage and what's going to get me to the next level? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's always my question. And I'm like, hey, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> if if, if I, I, I don't know, like you have to make a plan no matter where you are. And um, you sure you don't go into education policy. <laughs> is that is that what I'm? Kind of like, like some policy work needs to be written through a critical critical a critical race theory lens. Mm. I'm just saying that because you're you're talking about connecting um, curriculum and access for those less fortunate. Mm-hmm. That's that's a huge. I mean, that's a huge task. Um, and so I can speak from, you know, the experience that I was almost afforded in high school, and I use almost because the access was removed by the time I got there. And so while we did not have teachers in our building that were certified to teach uh, AP calculus, they connected with the School of Science and Math in North Carolina. Uh, one of the top schools in the nation uh, and one of their teachers we were one of the few campuses in North Carolina again 
impoverished community, um, all black and brown. I do not believe I have one white person in my graduating class. Um, we had a cyber campus where we could remotely have teachers come from anywhere in the world and teach us in Halifax County, North Carolina. And by the time I became a senior, was hoping to take AP calculus and some of the other elective options at the School of Science and Math, it was removed. I never knew why it was removed, but I promise you it was probably due to funding. Mm-hmm. So, you know, someone, someone out there said we do, we do, we cannot continue to afford to, you know, pay for this, um, even though that was the purpose of it. They couldn't afford to do it. But then, you know, my um, my rival high school across the, the county, they didn't have a Spanish teacher. So what did they ask our Spanish teacher to do? Go to the cyber campus, and we need you to teach both, pro- both programs at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about providing access, um, I think we also have to do our due diligence in discussing options. Because the whole purpose of the access is for you to have the option to do what you desire. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't have those access. I, you know, in high school, we were told to become teachers or become a nurse. I do have some graduating classmates that became um, engineers. Uh, I don't know for certain that any of us went to a professional school. I don't think anybody in my graduating class is a lawyer or a medical doctor or dentist or anything like that. I do know people behind me, you know, you know, had access uh, to some of those opportunities uh, and some people before me. But just my years, we didn't have all of the access to those opportunities. Like, I'll be honest with you. And back then, I was I probably would have said I was ashamed of it. Um, but I didn't know what it took to become a medical doctor. Mm. Um, no one told me that there was such a major called pre-med. There was such a major called biology pre-med, or you can major in pretty much any of the sciences and possibly go to medical school. Um, I didn't have AP biology. I didn't have AP physics. I didn't have AP chemistry. (laughs) So... (laughs) talk about again access so were people at my school afford the access to go to medical school no so that's why for me i had to find some form of access for my students and so when they reach out to me and they say miss errington can you write me a letter of recommendation for college absolutely can i put you down for a reference absolutely right and a lot of times I realize how far that name of school administrator can go. Because I'm like, I, I put my pants on the same way you do, one leg at a time. Mm-hmm. They're like, no, 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 you don't. You're a school administrator. Ms. Arrington, do you know what that means? You can enact change on a community. You're responsible for those kids' futures. And, you know, when I started putting into those terms, those I mean, I did, I was thinking about that and, you know, when I was in the classroom, like, it's my job to make sure they leave me with everything possible, both, you know, academically 
as well as, you know, socially to be able to conquer this world. Because it's going to take everything from you and give you nothing. And you got to be prepared to fight against it. And so when I sit in spaces with um, the status quo and we're discussing math, a lot of times I just sit back and I just listen. When we discuss student data, I just sit back and listen. A lot of people think my silence means I'm not an active participant. Uh, but my silence really is to allow them the opportunity to let me into their lives because I need to know who I'm working with. I need to know the camaraderie that I'm about to build or the camaraderie I'm attempting to build because I need to know if we're going to be on the same playing field mm-hmm. or exactly how much work I'm going to have to do for you to see my vision in order for us to get there. See that, and and that's the spot I'm at too. I I sit and and just listen most of the time, uh-huh. and I do I do exactly what you just explained right there, because I know uh-huh. if I got and and I don't do well with uh with defending what I have to say. You know what I mean? Like, oh, where's the data on that? Where's the data? I'm like, sometimes there's not no data for <laughs> for it. it you have. The- you you do have it. It may not be quantitative. Right. It can still be qualitative. You have it because this, this notion, this thing that you're presenting to this team, it came from somewhere. It, it, it came from dialogues with family members. It came from conversations with students. It came from your shared experiences with students. It's all there. Right. So, but they don't believe it. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, like, what what do I do now? Like, once you once you ask for my opinion, and then you don't take it, <laughs> what am I supposed to do now? And and then um, be then I got the whole like it's a whole culture. It's the whole it's the whole environment. There's not a um, it, it, I'm the only in that realm. So and and I'm you like. I grew up in an all white school, went to all white church, all that stuff. So, so I understand them from the perspective of like I know when they don't trust me or or I threaten them or whatever. I can feel that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it it puts me on the defensive, and my gift doesn't come out when I'm on the defensive. Like if you let me speak and let me speak freely, like uh, you you'll get everything out of me. Like and and you get it. It, it may be raw, but but it, it's it's real stuff. And like I'm a highly educated person too, so like you right. <laughs> you you can't deny. And then I have a, a lived experience, and I I know a lot. Like I've been around a lot of different people. Like I'm talking about hundreds of people every single day like and not just uh uh students i'm talking about like adults like after school you know i i work with um you know homeless people uh the developmentally disabled people and um i do volunteer work and you know different things like that so i have a wide range of of knowledge of like human humans in general (laughs) and and i read a lot of books and so the connections that i make you may not know the connection like you may not get the connection because you haven't studied as much as i have 
and um, been around as many people as I have. So, I mean, when I'm sitting in there, just like you said, like, and I have to, I'm listening. It's hard for me to see that I can help change without, you know, fully, like, I have to teach you and I have to teach you um, what I'm talking about. Like, I have to get you out of your um, your conditioning <laughs> first. Mm-hmm. And then I have to uh-huh. to teach you how to teach this other this this student, and that drains. That's a draining activity every single day. And we're doing the work of social justice is is draining. <laughs> it's hard, but what what gets us up each day is the fact that you know we're doing it one step at a time. Yeah, um, and. So I think that you're faced with a couple of challenges. Um, I hear you haven't said much about your school, your your principal, um, and their mindset with it. Because without that shift, now I'm not saying it can't be done, but you're going to have to take substantial data, some substantiating data to your school administration team. Um and in that community where it's affluent, um, and I'm sure they're getting every accolade in, in the district because people of, you know, students of color are being taught by whites, yet they are thriving, mm-hmm. according, to, according to the data. Um, so I wonder what would some post-high school conversations be like post-secondary conversation be like with former um, students if you were to talk with alumni and talk about their experiences when through ninth and 12th grade and how that either prepared them or uh, may have hindered or stunted their growth from being prepared to go into society and attend college or go into the workforce or the military um, were they do they feel like they were truly prepared beyond the textbook Mm-hmm. Uh, and that might be a, a data point that, that would um, solidify your notions of what's taking place right now in your school. Um, because without that vision from the principal, that's really hard to change. Yeah. And, you know, they, they talk about, um, um, you know, diversity, inclusion, and uh, we we need to be more welcoming to our students and all facets or whatever, like. But <laughs> I mean, I struggle. Uh, I struggle with it when people use the terms diversity and inclusion. I just say, are we? Which one do you want to do? Because we use them synonymous of each other, but they don't mean the same thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll often tell folks, you know, diversity is. I'm inviting you to the dance. I'm saying, hey, you can come to the dance, but I'm not allowing you to partake in the dance. You can come, but you're going to sit down the whole time. (laughs) And that's typically what happened with us. We're asked to come to the party, but we can't participate in the party. We can't touch the dance floor. Now, when you're talking about being inclusive, I'm going to ask you to come, and I'm going to ask you to participate in the dance. You're going to also party with me. And so when I think about education policy, when I think about the inclusiveness of it, 
I think about me sitting at this table with other politicians, with other policymakers, and being a part of the change. My voice is being heard. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot what what you're describing is, is diversity where you're being asked to sit at this table, but you're not being included because your viewpoint or your perspective is not seen, which is baffling for me because I would have thought they would glean from you and say, hey, you're a person of color, you're a male of color. Why can't, help me understand, what am I missing with my black students? Right. And and I'm not I'm I'm not one to speak up in in huge meetings and stuff like that either. So, um, <laughs> you remind me so much of myself. No lie, I'm being so serious. You remind me a lot of myself because um, I'm introverted too. I'm I'm introverted and extroverted oh, at the I'm same time. Introvert. Yeah, so oh, you wouldn't believe it, but I'm introverted. Right, people don't believe it when I tell them either. And that's why we sit back and and because uh, I have you read the the book uh, Quiet by Susan Cain? No, no. She 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 goes into how the uh, the power of introverts and uh, talks about a lot of the 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 most powerful people in the world and in history were mo- mostly introverts and um, like I got real good insight on that that side of me because I grew up that way like I was a real quiet person and uh, observant and um and then you know a couple of the the uh the personality tests and things like that like it I mean you wouldn't know it because I worked myself out of it because um you know I wanted to work with people and like I can only take so much of people, but I'm around people all the time because I, I teach group fitness mm-hmm. classes and, you know, I, I want to be around students and uh, and just everybody. I want to help. I just want to help. <laughs> and it I, that's just my personality. You kind of that would, um, I mean, I don't know how long you plan on staying in the school system. Um but have you considered uh, a stand at board of education? No, my 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 years in education is uh, they're coming to an end. <laughs> so I'm going into. Well, I mean, you know, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I'm 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 transitioning into life coach, speaker, author, you know, seminar leader. Like that. That's 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 where I see I can make the most change dealing with um go ahead but you like the board is the other part that people don't realize and that was the other piece that led me to education policy the board of education they're the ones that really run the district Mm -hmm. they make all the big changes um superintendent make recommendations (laughs) but the board votes on it yep and um some may or may not have ever been in education in the educational field. Hmm. Some may or may not know what's going on within the schools. Um, thankfully, that's not the situation in my school district. Um, they, not everybody advocate is an advocate for the community. People move into those positions for various reasons, and so that's another policy role. 
uh, where people have the opportunity to make change within the community and um, and to make sure that the funds being provided to the district are equitable. Mm, um, okay. And it have an amount of, of funding. And even if it's not even the students' funding, it's the, the building access, uh, the building code. Um, is it up to date? Is it up to I mean, most of the schools in America were built decades ago. Mm-hmm. Decades ago. And when, when you pull into a building and you can determine which decade based on the architectural design, Hmm. I'm lucky enough to be at one of the newest facilities here in Gifford County in Greensboro. I'm lucky enough to be there. Um, but I've taught in some very old, I've taught in some very old buildings too. Right. Um, where, you know, the air conditioning really didn't work, but the heat worked year round. <laughs> you're sitting in the middle of April and it's a sweat box. And you're asking students to make sure they dress appropriately because you're going to have to take off layers of clothes when you come to my class. Because, I mean, it's, it's, you're going to sweat and you want me to over, you want me to, uh, compete with students being uncomfortable in my class on top of them not liking math, on top of them having literacy challenges, on top of them reading on a second grade level, yet they're sitting in an eighth grade class. You want me to combat all of this? And see, that's when your board of education comes in and say, we need to do, we need to get some funding into that community, either renovate the school, build a new school or something. And so when you have parents that rally like that, change can happen in the community. Uh, you have to balance that change. You have to balance that relationship with parents and your school because at the end of the day, the only person that you can, I mean, you can influence the community, but I guess the I loosely use the word control um, is in that building. That's that's your domain. You are the leader. That is your building um, as a principal. So um, you might you you'd be surprised. You might end up in board education after a while. Yeah, yeah. I I could see myself doing that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, and but sit there and fight, and you're gonna fight for a specific community because you're gonna oversee a a zip code or two. Yeah. Uh, this is this has been eye opening. I'm glad I I, I shared everything because I I didn't have no uh, no idea what policy was like. I you know, thank you, thank you, thank you for shedding that light because now I have an an avenue to to explore, and I love exploring uh different things and new things and just just to see how I can help change because. Uh, with my thinking, I was like, well, one day I'll probably just have a, a school that I created <laughs> out of, you know, thin air, like, because I know a lot of education, uh, people in education, former principals and things like that. I was like, why don't we just make a school for ourselves? You know what I mean? <laughs> but. And I would, I would even challenge you to go look at your board of education policies in your district uh-huh. um, and see what does it say about access to curriculum? What does it say about, and, and why is it that students that you're I mean, granted, I mean, you're at a, the way that you're speaking of it, uh, quite an affluent school. I mean, you guys are high performing, um, one of the top school, schools in the, in the state. Um, 
I'm sure they're not busing white kids to your school to take classes, but yet they'll bus black kids to a white school to take classes. Mm. Which is what happens in a lot of cases where we don't offer it here, but we're going to we're going to provide you transportation during the middle of the day that you can go take this classes somewhere else. Which is typically a white school, which again, Nothing, you know, I'm, I'm appreciative of the opportunity, but why can't we just put that source in back in our school? Yeah. Policy. Policy. So, um, Policy. <laughs> we, we, we done went way over time, <laughs> but, uh, I know I'm, that's my fault. I apologize. No, no, you, you, it's interesting. I, I love it. I just need you to uh, plug the book and give us some words of wisdom to get out of here. Uh, so, plugging the book. So, um, just tell about your chapter, a little a snippet about your chapter and, and what people can can look for, forward to in um, the, the band, alumni band edition. Um, with the alumni band edition, um, I look at it through, um, I mean, going back to what I described being an Aggie, um, no matter the year, I can always come home to homecoming and participate in that alumni band. And it's like, you know, the, the drums never stopped. The horns never stopped sounding. Um, the drum major whistle never stopped blowing and the directors never stopped conducting. Um, it was, it was, I mean, as I stated at the end of my chapter, A&T carved his name in my heart. And so that's what it's like to be an alumnus of an HBCU marching band program. Uh, you walk away with a, a large piece of history that is tradition at those institutions. And uh, the only thing that you hope is that you're able to impart a little piece of wisdom on those that's coming after you. And then that continues on with that generational wealth of knowledge to have access to opportunities in our community. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, go get the book, the HBCU experience movement the HBCU Band Alumni Edition. It will release at the end of the month on Amazon. Go get it, support, and have a great day.